right, well, um, question is this, who does what in, in your house? You know, it takes, it takes a lot to keep a household running. And uh, I remember when our kids were younger, uh, we had charts set up for them. You know, the allowance charts. Does anyone have a chart in their growing up years magnetized to the uh, refrigerator door? Remember those? Um, clean your room, you know, take out the trash, pick up the toys, that kind of stuff. Some of you love the charts, right? You're really into the charts. You had the stars and stickers, and, and you kept the chart in your scrapbook. You can pull it out, and today, like, you know, Excel is your happy place, right? Um, there's those kind of people, and then there's other people who just could care less about the charts. Um, don't like the charts. I'm, I'm probably not the biggest fan of a chart, um, but nevertheless, I do appreciate that there's a certain level of structure that's, that's needed to keep, to keep things functional. So, so now that our kids are kind of grown, Diane and I, we have a lot more flexibility built into the way that uh, we run things. And, and so we each have our own default areas that we take care of. And then, you know, we flex a bit depending on who's available and, and who's busy. Um, so, for example, most of the time, Diane cooks. Um, but when she does and if she's busy, then I jump in. And by jump in, what I mean is that I pick up the phone and I order takeout for us. <laughs> and I'll even pick it up. So, uh, so on the other hand, I typically will bring the firewood in, you know, from the wood pile. And when I can't, for whatever reason, Diane jumps in. And by jumping in, that means she walks to the thermostat and turns up the heat. So... Um, different things, different people. Uh, we're, we're in the second week of a series. It's called House Rules. We've been making our way through the New Testament book of 1 Timothy. Uh, it's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, who was a, a young church leader whose church was in need of some, some house rules, um, some order and structure and ways to go about doing things so the family of faith would, would be functional and uh, moving forward, and, and every church family needs a certain amount of house rules, uh, not, to, not to make people fearful or afraid, but to just help things, keeping, keeping them functional and, and moving in the right direction, and that's, I think, much preferred to the uh, alternative, which would be dysfunctional and moving in, in the wrong direction. Um, so we started last week, and we covered three house rules. Uh, the first the first was, build this house, don't bash it, right? So I checked again this week, and criticism is still not on the list of spiritual gifts. Um, so uh, number two is, authority applies in this house. Operate within it, not around it. And then house rule number three last week we looked at is that the gospel is always the main message in this house, and so we, we keep it tuned in. And we turn up the volume as loud as it can go and keep it on. And so that leads us uh, to the next house rule that we're looking at this morning. Because the, the, the gospel that we looked at last week is not only the message that God's house is built on. It's also the message God's family has been built for to, to be entrusted with and broadcast. And so, so before we dive too deep in, I want to just review that message uh, one more time. Uh, Paul summed it up uh, last week in chapter 1, verse 15, when he wrote this, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance 
that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So that's, that's it. That's a summation of the gospel. It's the message about a savior. His name is Jesus, and he came into this world for sinners to, to settle the sin issue, the sin issue that we all have. And, and if you're thinking sin issue, I, I don't have any sin issue. Um, all I would ask is just do me a favor, turn to the person next to you and ask them if they agree with that assessment. Um, you know, ask them if they can verify for you that you are indeed up to this point have lived a perfect sin-free existence. Oh, oh, that's sin issue, right, exactly. Um, sin is, is going my way instead of God's way. It's, it's doing what I want for me instead of what, what the God who created me wants for me. And sin separates. It separates from God. It separates us from, from each other. And ultimately, it leads to death. And so the gospel uh, says that there is nothing we can do to settle this issue on our own, which is, which is why we need a savior. And, and by the way, that's, that's a completely different message from the message of religion, Um, religion will tell you that, yes, you have a sin issue, but you can settle it. You just have to do enough of the right things. Follow this list of rules. And, of course, from one religion to the next, the list is going to vary, but the the message is always the same. You've got to try hard. You've got to do more. And it it doesn't matter how much you've done already. There's always more you have to do. And and really, that's what makes religion so, so exhausting and so burdensome because you never know, right? You just keep on hoping and keep on working, and you think that maybe if I get to the end, I've done enough, and God will accept me and receive me and, and let me in. That's not the gospel. Uh, the gospel is not about what we have to do for God. It's about what God, through Jesus, has done for us. That, that Jesus, the sinless son of God, left his home in heaven, that he came here as a man, and he laid down his life on the cross and died in our place for our sin. And so that, at once, at first it tells us actually just how serious this sin issue is, that it took nothing less than the son of God coming down and dying on a cross to settle it. Uh, but the amazing part is that Jesus did that. That's That's the good news, that he did everything that needed to be done to save us from our sin. And so the good news is that the price has been paid, the issue's been settled, Jesus did it all, and and he's the Savior. And and that's a message that invites a response, because it's offered to us and it's received by grace. Uh, Grace means it's a gift. It's something we receive by faith, by trusting personally in what Jesus did on the cross and saying, yeah, that's what he did for me. He's not just the Savior, he's my Savior. And so the gospel, um, the message is that grace is amazing, that the amazing grace that God pours out on our lives, it's life-changing, it's life-changing in a way that following lists of rules can never be. And, and so there's no other message like it. And it's so central that the entire household of God, the church, it's built around it. And so that message of grace starts working its way through every aspect of the way that we do life, as well as the way that we do church. And that's what 
the next part of this passage is about. It, it lays out, here's what a church that's been shaped by the gospel will look like. So let's read together chapter 2, and starting in the first three verses, it says this, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. Okay, so house rule number four. Um, In this house, prayer is primary. Pray first, and everything else that has to be done, there's a lot of other things to do, but it emerges out of that. And, And you can't help but notice that the orientation here, it's intentionally outward. It's not pray for us, it's pray for all kinds of people. Pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people in all kinds of position. And the key word is all, all kinds of prayers, uh, requests, intercessions, and, and thanksgiving for all kinds of people, including kings and those in positions of authority. And, and, and then the way you read the next line really matters. So the next line says, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now, the first few times I read through that, I thought I knew what it meant. I thought it meant that that's the prayer request. We are praying for these people in positions of authority. We just leave us Christians be, leave us alone so we could live in peace and do what we want. But the more I studied it, the more I looked at it, I realized that's not the request, that's the result, right? The, the, the request is to pray for these people, all people, all places, all positions, but it's as we pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people in all kinds of places that those kind of prayers have an effect on us. It, it causes us to lead peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity. See how different that is? It, the idea is that Praying these expansive prayers has a recalibrating effect on our lives. It, it clears out the noise. It, all the distractions start fading away, and it, it wakes us up to the things that really matter. And we start seeing how much godliness matters, how much character development counts. So prayer is primary. We're at our best when we're on our knees. You know, we live in a world where everybody wants to sound off and tell the world something. I've got something to say. And that also applies to Christ followers, right? We've got something to say. Um, And there's a time and there's a place for that. But in this house, the idea is that we are priests before we're prophets, right? Prophets tell people what God says. Priests tell God what people say. They bring the requests of people before God. So, so, so that's the idea. We're not ready to talk to them about God until we've talked to God about them, until we've prayed for them and, and thanked God for them and interceded for them and asked God to bless and provide for them. And that means whoever them might be, Them is all people, but then there's a specificity here. It's a particular mention, those in positions of authority. How timely, because election season is upon us once again. Uh, Aren't you glad? 
And what I've seen is that that means that the slander cycle is in high gear. It's in high gear. And so this may sound like an exaggeration to you, but I don't mean it that way. I mean it to be very realistic. When I turn on cable news and I listen to what comes out of the TV, it sounds demonic. And and I'm not saying one cable news network, all of them. It's like a 24-hour nonstop slander show, nonstop lies, accusations, misrepresentations. These are Satan's native language. And too often, Christ followers, we get sucked right into the slander show, don't we? Even today, the trend in many churches, this is crazy to me, but it's happening. Like, churches start identifying themselves by the political party those who attend are affiliated with, right? Like, is this a Republican church or a Democratic church? That's, that's insanity, okay? Um, and so what I would say is not here, right? You guys know that, but I'm going to say it again. Not in this house, right? Um, this house does not get divided along political lines, now, I hope you have political convictions. I do. I, I hope you are, vote your conscience. I will. Um, but that's not what defines us. This, this house is united together in praying God's best for whoever it is that's occupying the White House and other positions of leadership. That's our call. Criticizing those in authority is not our call. Bringing their needs before the Lord is. And so that's how... That's how God set up this house to roll. So, so here's, here's what we can do. Uh, we can let others do the demonizing, okay? Right? They've got that category all taken care of. They don't need any help. How about we just focus on the praying over the next few months till November? How, how different would that be? So what, what becomes abundantly clear as we pray in that way, these big ways is to understand what becomes clear is that the issue that matters most isn't and never will show up on either political party's agenda. There's this mandate that God has entrusted exclusively to his household of faith. It's something he calls his people to take on and to carry out, and that's to share the gospel message everywhere. Because there's one thing that all people in all places and all kinds of positions need to know about. It's that there is a Savior. His name is Jesus, and he came into the world to save sinners. And that's what, uh, that's what the passage goes on to say. It says, this is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. All right, so so house rule number five, this is it. God's house is a house on mission. So we are here for a purpose, The church is a purpose-driven place. 
The purpose is not to isolate, it's to penetrate, it's to reach out, it's to share the gospel, the good news to all people in all positions, in all places, and and help connect them to the Savior, to Jesus. See, that's, that's the reason why Lakeview Community Church exists. We are here for the purpose of reaching our community Carmel for Christ, and and Putnam County, the Hudson Valley, the tri-state area, this country, and the whole world. And, And don't get the wrong idea. That's not just a part of what we do. That is what we do. It is the thing we do. Everything we do gets funneled through that mission. And, and that aligns around these three realities we read in this passage. The heart of God, the cross of Christ, and the gospel message. So verse 4 says, God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. It's pretty self-explanatory, but it means there's no person any of us has ever met that God doesn't care about. That God doesn't want to be reconciled and made right with him again. So that's reality number one. The second is the cross of Christ. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Not some, all. That, that means when Jesus gave his life on the cross, he didn't just give it for some people. He gave it for all people. Now, that doesn't mean redemption gets applied to all people because that requires a response. And that's what the third reality is. It's there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself. That means the gospel is a message for everyone. It's relevant to all people and in all places, in all positions, because Jesus is the only way to God. There's not many paths to God. There's one mediator. It's Jesus. And I know in our culture it sounds intolerant to say that, but I don't think it is, and I'll tell you the reason why. There is no other religious leader who ever claimed to save anyone from their sins. You can look at the world religions. Buddha didn't. Moses didn't. Mohammed didn't. Every other religious leader... They laid down a list of rules. Follow this. Jesus didn't hand down a list of rules. He laid down his life on the cross. And the reality is, is if there was another way to get to God, then we got to look at the cross and say, what a mistake. Jesus, you didn't have to do that. We could have done it a different way. Uh, But that's just not the case. And so what that comes down to is that there are two options before every person on this planet, either to trust that Jesus did what he came to do to save us from our sins, or the other option is to pay for our sins ourselves. And so that's, that's why this matters so much. That's why it actually makes the, the status of a house rule, because there's a lot at stake. E- eternity is at stake, and this is why we, we, we take salvation seriously at this church. We call people to place their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we don't take ourselves seriously, but we do take salvation seriously, re- receiving Jesus as Savior. If you haven't done that, if you haven't responded and come to that saving knowledge of the truth, 
I just pray that today would be the day that you'd take that step. So we're, we're a house on mission. We exist to know Christ, to make him known, and, and that ultimately it works its way out individually in the way of what I would call divine appointments. Paul talks about his appointment, that he says, I've been appointed to share the gospel with the Gentiles. And he has to emphasize, I'm not kidding, I'm not making this up. You, it's unbelievable that a guy like me would go at, reach a people like them, but that's where God sent me. That was his mission field. And, and take note, the, the expectation is not that they would come to him or they would come to us, it's that we go to them, right? We meet them where they are and share Christ in a way that we can. And so, and so God, God appoints divine appointments um, to all of us. There's some kind of mission field before us. And the question I'm always asking is, what's yours? And what are you doing with it, right? It's, it's the people that you work with. It's the members of your family. It's the neighbors on your street. It's the parents on your kid's soccer team, right? These are the people God has placed in your life and appointed you to go and to love on them, to invest in them, to pray for them, and, and to share the Savior with them. That's, that's what we're here for. We're, we're a house on mission. And so that brings us to the, to the last part of this chapter, of this passage. And this part is... It's a pretty short part, but it's dense, and I got to tell you, it's difficult. Um, What it's doing is addressing some of the specific issues in Timothy's church that were getting in the way of God accomplishing, of of them accomplishing God's mission. Some of the ways that the, the gospel wasn't working its way out in their life and the way they did church, and so... He's going to call them to get out of the way, whatever's in the way. And the interesting part, I think you're going to find this interesting, is that um, it's playing out in, in, in different ways uh, for men than it is for women. So for men, it's their attitude, and for the women, it's their attire. So the men go first. Here's, here's what it says. He says, I desire that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. See, some of the men in Timothy's church, um, anger and quarreling were getting in the way. They, They were wrapped up in some bad teaching. They were wrapped up in these secondary issues, these foolish controversies. And it was just stirring up dissension and conflict. And, and so the message is simple. Deal with it, guys, right? Stop lifting up angry hands with closed fists in prayer, set aside the anger, the quarreling, so you can lift up holy hands in prayer. That was their issue. And maybe it's your issue. Maybe your issue is something else. It doesn't matter. It's an example, right? These are the kind of things that get in the way. So whatever it is, the point is the same. Get it out of the way. Ladies, uh, Ladies, come next. It says, likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearly or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So for some of the women in Timothy's church, the issue was their wardrobe. They, they were more concerned um, with what they were wearing to church than the attitude they were bringing to church, right? Their, their focus was getting 
you know, was on getting looked at instead of doing good. Um, and so Paul just, he just nudges them, you know, address that. When you come to church, come dressed with a servant's heart, right? With a focus on doing good. And so once again, not a big deal. You look at it and say, this is like one of those gentle nudges, this little bit of course correction, keeping things moving, keeping things on track in the right direction. And the reality is every, every church needs it because every church has issues. Now, their issues may or may not be our issues, but whatever it is, the point's the same. It's to simply get what's in the way, out of the way, so we can stay on track and accomplish God's purposes. Okay, so that brings us to the last part of the passage, and I know some of you, if you knew where we were going this week, this is the part you've been waiting for all morning. And um, I'm going to read it, we're going to unpack it together, and I promise you everything is going to be okay. Okay, it might not sound that way when I read this passage, so I'm going to just ask you to stay with me and hear me out, and um, here's what it says. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was not formed first, but Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Okay, you're still here. Good. Uh, what in the world is going on here, right? That's the question. So we got to break it down, and we're going to do that one line at a time. And the first is this, the first line, let a woman learn. Now, we need to stop there, and we need to first of all recognize how revolutionary those three words um, would have been in the first century Roman Empire, Because back then, when it came time for learning, what typically would happen is the women would be dismissed. You leave the room and the men are going to learn. But but Paul says, no, let women learn. We we, we can't miss that. Um, And the instruction as we go on, it's for women to learn in a respectful way. The same way anyone, man or woman, would be expected to learn. Teachers in the classroom, this is what you want, right? The kids aren't shouting, they're not disrupting, they're, they're in quietness and submission. That's just the, the default posture of a student. And then he, he goes on and he addresses the issues of le- teaching and of leadership in the church. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to remain quiet. Now, of course, this is the part, right? This is the part where, where things get controversial. And it's interesting because no one ever seems to care about the other parts of this passage. Like, for example, why do we let men pray without lifting up their hands? Paul says to do that, right? Or, or why do we let women come to church with braids or with pearls? Or why don't we make sure their outfits that they're wearing didn't cost too much? That's never the issue, but the issue is always, how can a church allow a woman to teach? So let me start out with this. If you have a problem with this part, at least be consistent and have a problem with the whole thing. And if you don't have a problem with the other parts, 
then at least be willing to explore what other factors might be playing into this part. Okay, can we do that? Um, two distinct issues. One is teaching. They're not tied together. So, so Paul's not saying, I do not permit a woman to teach a man. It's teaching in general. So if you read it in Greek, the word order reads this. To teach, however, a woman I do not permit. That's, that's it. And yet, we can look at other places in Scripture, like in Titus, where Paul encourages the older women to teach the younger ones, right? And, 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 and about remaining silent, what we see in 1 Corinthians, it talks about women prophesying in church. As long as they had a symbol of authority, that was not only allowed, it was approved. And that symbol was, was long hair in that, in that day. And when you look at Acts, and we see that Priscilla and Aquila, this couple, they were teaching um, Apollos. And so all of those passages factor into how we make sense and work through this passage. So, so I'll tell you how I work through it. You don't have to agree with me. I may not agree with me next week, um, but uh, the way I understand it is that it seems likely that this is just another particular issue Paul is paying attention to and addressing. And part of how we find that out is in 2 Timothy, the second letter that Paul writes to Timothy, he talks about false teachers who he says this, he said, have been creeping into the households and capturing weak women and leading them astray. That, that was an issue in that church. These false teachers found, found a home with women and, and they would use that to just tell them their lies and empower them and they go out and start teaching. And so, and so it seems like Paul is addressing that by calling them Ladies, learn the right way. Learn the right thing instead of teaching the wrong thing. Again, you can see it differently. Uh, You don't have to agree with me on that. Um, But at the very least, I think we can understand that it's a possible interpretation. That a woman exercising the God-given spiritual gift of teaching to build up the church on a platform that is not necessarily an indication that the church has abandoned orthodoxy, okay? We'll leave it at that. Second issue. This one has to do with authority. He says she is not to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, one thing to understand is the word Paul uses here for authority, he's talked about authority in this letter already a few times, This is a different word. It's not the word he's been using. In fact, this is a word that, this is the only time it shows up in the entire Bible. Um, It means dominating authority. It means tyrannical authority. It means it's my way or the highway kind of authority, right? So, So that's what's being called out is out of line. And again, not just for women, Right? This would apply to men or women. But in their church, in this case, this was an issue that some of the women were, 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 were having an issue with, of having overstepped. And then to go back and make the whole thing kind of make sense, Paul, Paul goes all the way back to the beginning, to the Garden of Eden, to Adam and Eve. And he makes two points. The first is that Adam was, first, was formed first, And the second point is that the woman was the one who was deceived. 
Now, don't take that as a way of pointing fingers. That's not what it's about. This is a snapshot. Um, It's not a template. So what you don't want to do, guys, do not do this, is do not walk out of here and take away that, you know what? Women are more likely to be deceived than men, okay? It's right here. No, I'm sorry. Deception is an equal opportunity employer, and it affects both men and women, maybe in different ways, but to the same degree. But back in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, God made the man. He made Adam. And there's this beautiful story of how he created Eve out of the side of a man, took the rib out, formed Eve out of her side, so out of his side, so that they would be together. So, so there would be companionship. So there would be this partnership. And then, and then what was right went wrong, right? Uh, um, you know, the... The serpent came, they ate the, they ate the fruit, and, and everything that was right went wrong. Do you remember on the other side of that, what happens? God comes into the garden, and, um, and he talks about how this relationship between man and woman, this, this, this gender relationship, it was going to get complicated. Um, there was going to be this battle of the sexes that would be ongoing, and we can all attest to that, Right? You know, yes, that is the case. It is hard for men and women to figure out how to get along. So he told the woman this. He said, your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. In other words, this is, this is not going to be easy. There is going to be conflict. And, and that's exactly what was happening at Timothy's church. And so just like with Adam and Eve... There were two factors in play, right? So, you know, it's Adam was, was first and Eve was deceived. And so what that means is the question is, who's, whose fault was it? Who's responsible for it? Um, who does God call after the serpent? Um, who does he call out to in the garden? He calls to Adam, who does he hold responsible for the fall of the entire human race? Adam, not Eve. So if you look at Romans 5, 1 Corinthians, it talks about one man's sin being passed on. Not one woman's sin, one man's sin. And it's getting into this point. Adam was first. He should have been out front. And so he's the one responsible. It's a concept called headship, and it's about stepping up. It's about taking responsibility. It's about caring for and protecting. And Adam blew it, right? He should have been up front there in the garden. He should have crushed the serpent's head, but he was hanging back, watching it all go down, doing nothing. And so that's part of the problem in the church that Timothy's leading, Um, There's women who are overstepping, and there's men who are on the sidelines. They're wrapped up in these stupid controversies when they ought to be leading. And so the question is, what's the the solution to this problem? And, And I think it's to go back to the blueprint, back to God's original design. And I think that's how I make sense of this last verse, which I think it really is one of the most mysterious verses in the entire Bible. She will be saved through childbearing if they, it's interesting, it goes from singular, feminine, she, to they, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. 
I see that as an invitation. It's an invitation for both men and women, for the women who were overstepping uh, to go back, to remember and embrace who God made them to be, what kind of things they were divinely suited to do. Childbearing being one example of that, not the only example, just an example of that. But that's not it. Um, we, we can't get to it this morning uh, because there's a game on later today and I don't want to keep you here too long. But next week, the first verse that comes next is addressed to men. And it lays out, here's what a godly leader looks like. It's the profile of a church elder. And so you see, it's like, it's these two factors working together. There's, there's, there's the, the women overstepping, needing to get back to where they belong. And there's men who were not where they belong who needed to step in. And so my example, which may not be a good one, I just, I just threw this one in last minute, is my bike. My bike is always a good example. Anytime I get a chance. This is the bike that I just got for winter riding. It's a lot of fun. But the point I want to tell you is the, uh, the, the tube there that goes up to the seat. You see how that tube is on an angle. Now, on a bicycle, getting the right position matters. Now, I'm 54 years old. I'm trying to do some competitive cycling this year. And so position, like, you would be surprised at how much gets invested in getting the proper position on a bike. Way too much. And so getting the right position matters. And so you think, well, how complicated can it be? You either raise the seat or you lower the seat so you get the proper knee angle. No, you don't. You can't because that, that, that seat tube is on an angle. So anytime you raise up the seat, you're also moving it back. You see, it's both. Anytime you lower the seat, you're also moving it forward. And so there's these two axles. There's up and down and there's, there's front to back. And they're all working together. They've got to work together. And, um, and so it's like this both and kind of thing. And I think that's what this is getting at. Um, it's about getting back to this, this blueprint. And so the church, this family of faith, it's a redeemed community. Um, we, we're imperfect. We're in process. But as best we can... We seek to reflect God's design, what he wants. Uh, we, we seek to get back to that garden um, identity. It's never easy, um, and I would tell you it's never to be coerced. Um, some people will say, you see, this is what it is. They'll read this verse, and they'll say, now get in line. And I think that completely misses the point. I don't think, unless you get back to the original design, you, you actually miss the point, and you can do more damage than good. Um, the point is that this is invitation. Men, you can step up in this way. And then women, you can step up in another way. But the idea, the goal is to get back to side by side, men and women working in complementary ways. Not at each other, but with each other. Not competing, but working together. So... So as we do that, um, just one small step at a time with a lot of missteps along the way, I think what can happen is that God's house can be a, a place that, that shows the watching world around us, here's how it works. This is a place where, 
where men and women are working together, bringing out the best in each other, honoring each other, leaning into what each one is uniquely designed to do. And, you know, the, the world outside, there's a lot of talk about gender these days. And you can just see that it is a total disaster, right? The house rules have been thrown out. There are no rules, and there's just nothing but chaos and confusion. And so the question is, what will, what will people find they walk into a place like this, into a church? I hope they find clarity. I hope they find something that they can see um, and they can kind of take the time to work through some of the places they're confused about and end with something that's, that's, that's beautiful, that's good and, and true. And, you know, in, um, in the first time years, I guess many years ago, the first wave of feminism um, was one that churches got behind because it was a recognition that women are uniquely designed to do certain things. What are the things that they can't do that, they, that they're not able to, to to be a part of who God designed them to be, who they are biologically for? And that was, that was how feminism started. The, the current wave of feminism, by and large, um, and I know I'm speaking stereotypically, so it may not be 100% true, but it has disconnected from the male-female relationship. So it's about autonomy for a single gender. So here is how a woman can be as liberated as a man so that you don't need another person. You can do everything on your own. And it's understandable that that would be like a desire because there's been so much damage but it doesn't work, and it destroys, it doesn't build up. Um, and so there's got to be some connection, some way to forge this men and women together working cooperatively. Um, to put it in a house rule, um, in this house we, we complement each other. We honor each other. We uphold each other. We appreciate the special and the uniqueness of every person, and we minister out of the specific ways that God has designed us as men and as women. See, we don't have to do everything. We can't do everything, right? It doesn't matter how hard I try, I'm never going to be able to bear children. God designed it that way. But there is something God has designed me to do. My value is not placed or, or dependent on what I do. My value is placed on who I am in Christ. And so that frees me to do that. It frees you to do that. It frees this community to take that and embrace it. So let me close. The question is, what does that look like for you, right? Um, I'm not going to tell you. I have presented this as best I can. I hope I've laid it out in a way that makes sense. And I trust that the Holy Spirit is good to be able to show you what that looks like, how that plays out, how the gospel is working its way out into your life in these kind of ways. Let's pray together. Lord,